It is hard to capture the food and feeling of a state in a book, but Gesine Bullock Prado has managed to do it. Read about the state of Vermont, its food, and its essence. Try the luscious food and hear Bullock Prado's thoughts on the state. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. So, we're here today with Gazina Bullock Prado. She is the author of My Vermont Table Recipes for All Six Seasons. She's a pastry chef, cooking instructor, and a prolific author. And she is a regular on the Cooking Channel and other television shows. Welcome, Kusina. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really, really impressed by this book. It is so beautiful. I can't believe how pretty it is. It's just really fun. So I wanted to tell you I had a great time just looking at it before I even <laughs> started reading the recipes or reading all of the the sort of really personal feelings that you have about the state and the food of the state. So it's really very delightful to read it. Oh, goodness. Thank you so much. It was a joy making this book. So I want to, first of all, tell you that I too am a recovering lawyer. And <laughs> so, so many <laughs> there really are. <laughs> um, so just to, the, just to get that out of the way. So first of all, I want to ask you, tell us about the six seasons. How does that happen? Well, a lot of people who are not from Vermont think that I've made it up, but it's, it is a common thing in Vermont to celebrate and observe six seasons and the extra seasons for non-Vermonters would be mud season, which is about happening now. And that's between winter and spring when the big thaw happens. And because the majority of our roads are dirt during the season, they turn into mud, hence mud season. There's mud <laughs> everywhere. And we are very good at navigating roads with snow and ice, but the mud is something else entirely different because you, it's intractable. You cannot get out of it. But luckily during mud season, we also have sugaring seasons when we boil down and evaporate the sap for maple syrup. So you can't have one without the other. And, Ain't that just like life? So we get the sweetness and the mud all in one season. And then the other season is stick season, where that's between fall after the leaves have fallen, or also peeper seasons. We call people who come to see the leaves leaf peepers. And and winter, and, and Daisy's agreeing with that. And that's when you just see sticks. There are no leaves, there is no snow, and it's kind of eerie and it's during Halloween. It's a fabulous time of year. And it's when you start cooking comf like stick rib sticky comfort food. It's, it's so fantastic. Mm, sounds great. I'm really familiar with the idea of having different seasons because here in Louisiana, we have shrimp season, crab season, yes, season, yeah. season. So <laughs> yeah, it works. I understand. <laughs> so, all right. 
I want to ask you about king cake, especially because today is Mardi Gras and you have a king cake recipe in your book. Now, is that because they actually eat king cake in Vermont or is that your particular connection to New Orleans or Mardi Gras? I, that's why it's called my Vermont table and not the <laughs> or a, it's my. That's the great thing about anybody's table that they you can be affected by the state you're in and the seasonality of it. But I mean, you can't, you know, no matter where you go, there you are. And here I am and I need king cake. <laughs> so, I like, so I bring the Vermont to it. And I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about exploring local food and cuisine, but bringing your own heart and soul to it. And king cake is one of those things that you just you just want to see the colors you want to have that lovely kind of cake but not but bread but sweet but soft and all those lovely things um and so i put a vermont spin on it but it's all from my heart so it it all works it's all from my table so (laughs) and mardi gras season and mardi gras is always like the gateway to my birthday so it makes me even happier (laughs) Well, today is the very last day to eat, eat king cake. And Correct. So it was particularly interesting to me when I was when I was reading the book, and I said, oh, "The actual the actual taping is going to be on Mardi Gras." So how to ask <laughs> you about it? Perfect timing. <laughs> So, okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that I really felt as I read, as I read the book. First of all, it's not your first personal book, but your books are very personal. And that's something that I really appreciate because it really makes it a lot more interesting. There's obviously a lot of baking that's in your books. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's always comforting. And I always think about baking here in, in New Orleans. Once again, I always think about baking only in the winter <laughs> because it heats up your whole house to yeah. bake in the summer. But uh, you live in a place where you can bake during almost the whole season, the whole year. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of wonderful. So when you you say in the book that when you came to uh, Vermont, you really felt like it was home. And can you describe that experience? What is it about Vermont that you really love? Well, I have, I grew up both in Germany. My mother was German, so I grew up in Germany with those mountains. And I grew up in Virginia in, in, in the D.C. area. And I went to college in Charlottesville. So kind of my, my lodestones in my childhood were always Germany, German mountains, German villages, Virginia, Virginian mountains, Virginia towns. And so when I drew, when my husband drove me, then, then boyfriend drove me into Vermont after we were visiting New Hampshire and we were literally, literally just went across the river. I realized I had found the best of my two childhood worlds in this one place. Everything in my heart was satisfied. So we're still in the Appalachian Mountains here. And so those gentle mountains to me are everything. I just love the gentle swell of them, no matter whether I'm in the South or in the North. If I'm near the Appalachian Mountains, I'm a happy, happy girl. But we also have those like really quaint villages. Like when you're driving through the countryside, you see that white church spire and you know that you have a place that's going to be safe that you can find nourishment and community and that to me is a lot like germany where you have those little villages nestled in the mountains 
mountains and you find your way there look, looking for the church there. And so all those things kind of work together in tandem to show me that there is a place in this world that is for me. And also all the seasons, the seasons were really important too. I really miss like a really crisp fall and I'm not great with really swampy weather, which is what we had in DC. And so this is it. This is my happy place. Okay. So how did you find cooking? Well, how did I you find it. I am a sweet tooth born and have always been and obsessed with sweets and baking and pastries since I could like reach the stovetop. And so that has been kind of a constant in my life, but also obviously cooking, just kind of nourishing have been things that have always been in my heart, have been things that I loved. Baking just tended to be the thing that I was utterly obsessed with. So that is what, like, I'm a pastry chef. I'm a baking instructor and all my books up until now have all been baking books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but when I made the show baked in Vermont for food network, I was kind of excited because I got to show my school, my baking teaching, but also how I cooked at home. And people really responded to that. I was, I, I don't, know why I was shocked, but I was shocked that people kept writing. They were like, we just love the way you approach both baking and cooking. And we want to see more from the cooking side. And we want it in a book. And then the publisher came to me and said, they wanted me to write the book that people had been asking me to write. And I'm like, well, gee, <laughs> I want to write it. People are asking <laughs> me to write it. Somebody might pay me to write it. I think it's time to write it. So I have to I kind of confess to you, I've only written one cookbook. I've written five books, but one is a cookbook and it was the most miserable experience of my life. I'm not a measurer. I'm a cook. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not trained or anything, but I wrote a book about my growing up half Sicilian in New Orleans in a place where tens of thousands of Sicilians immigrated at the turn of the 20th century. And so there was this big, huge Sicilian community that I grew up in and the food kind of merged with the food of New Orleans. And so you have this kind of conglomerate thing. And so I realized that there was no kind of first person account of growing up in that. And I saw my own children not feeling as connected to being Sicilian as I did. So I wanted them to have something. So I wrote this book. Do you think that there's a different personality of person, you know, the kind of person you are, if you are really interested in actual measurements versus just kind of throwing stuff in the pan? No, I mean, Honestly, because I was so obsessed with baking, I forced myself into the mindset of, of baking, which is measurement and precision. I am at nature a rather chaotic person and my base nature doesn't lend itself to baking, but I look at how I, I was trained and I trained myself in that particular area. I'm like, I should really apply this to the rest of my life. Approach baking, it's like, yes, I like everything is great. And then everything, I'm like, why can't I just like do that everywhere else? Because, well, it's not baking because it's my favorite thing in the world. But here's how I see it in that in taking that time for mise en place, for measuring, which you also do in cooking, but maybe not to the precision that you do in baking, 
I don't find it to be persnickety. I don't find it to be something that will takes away creativity. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think it gives you time to put your whole mind and body into a very relaxed state that you don't have a choice but to be in the moment baking um, and that you can just kind of shrug off. I think this is why people find baking so comforting when they do find baking comforting because you must be present and thoughtful. And to me, that isn't being persnickety or being uncreative. I find it just the opposite. I feel like your mind, body, soul, and heart have to be there for it to all work out. And when you measure things out, when you bother to like make sure everything is just right, when something is missing, you're at your most creative. Instead of like, if you're doing things on the fly, if you all of a sudden have a vital ingredient missing, then you're like, Rah! you're panicked and things can go very wrong. But in baking, because you are, you should be organized and you do things ahead of time, like to make sure that your, your baking goes to plan, say something is missing, then you can like have the time to do something incredibly creative. You can swap something out and perhaps invite, invent something entirely new and fantastic. And I think if you're in the right mindset, then you can be at your most creative uh, when you have to, when you have to take time to measure and take stock of the things around you. So one of the things that I really liked about your book was the beginning where you make a list of tools that you will need and things that really kind of define what you're talking about later when you actually are writing the recipes, um, you know, using this kind of flour, doing, you know, making sure that you have a scale, making sure you have all the things that you actually need. Was was that something that you wrote because people sort of requested it? Or is that sort of part of what you're talking about when you say that you want everything to be complete and prepared? And so that's why you put that at the beginning of the book. I, my approach to teaching is to make sure that my students have all the information that they need and not to start fishing for it mid-recipe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So when, so my approach is always, I'm going to give you all the information that I, I have. I don't want to leave everything out. And I think a lot of people who are specialized in different parts of the food world will hold something back so that they maintain that special light in that part of the food world, right? So because they're like, I will give you just enough information to get close to where I am, but never to exactly where I am. My approach is exactly the opposite. My, my approach is... I have made all the mistakes that you've made, um, perhaps more. And now I am like, I'm great at my job. I'm a great pastry chef. And, but I've had all those experiences that I can share with you. And I will share, I share with you straight up why I use the things I use. Uh, and many of them are things that I feel are held back from home cooks because it's specialized equipment that makes life so much better and easier for chefs, but they're infinitely available to home bakers and home cooks that will make the, that will just bring up everything they do a level. And, you know, professionals want to like maintain that professional mystique. Like you can only do this in a professional setting. It's like, I'll tell you what you can do at home. <laughs> and so give, not, me, give me okay. an example of, of one of those things. 
Okay, one of those things, it's a tool and it's the sous vide. And what it is, is it's like an immersion heat gun that goes into water. It circulates water and, and you vacuum seal proteins. So from fish, anything, and you can also do veggies, any nut, you can even temper chocolate in it. And the name sous vide, I think is intimidating because it's French. You're like, oh, it's like only for Michelin star chefs. And then you think that it's a, this kind of wand that circulates in heat and you're like is this poaching like it's kind of confusing but when you when you see what it does with the meat the fact that it's not poaching it's not touching the water it's just perfection of temperature and proteins and vegetables without losing any of the flavor in fact infusing more then it's a game changer for home cooks because Things like beef wellington, fried chicken, the perfect salmon, the perfect potato are all within reach when you have a sous vide. And the thing is small, it fits into a drawer and it's not, it's not crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. And it is not hard to figure out. You dial in the exact temperature that you want your meat to be, medium rare, rare, get it to temperature, walk away. And then you you see her after you you know you get that lovely caramelization after, and you you can like cater if you're having a party and you're making steaks and you're like, I don't know if my grilling is on point to the to to the point that I can get it exactly right for everyone. I'll tell you something: sous vide all the steaks and like label them for whomever your guests are. Slap them on the grill to get a nice char and heat, and you will be a superhero or heroin of the party. I mean, it's amazing. And then all that tension and all that fear out the window. Okay, well, see that that is so reassuring to hear that, that you feel that when you're reading, that's exactly the way I felt when I was reading the book that, oh, okay, I understand that now. Or, oh, I've been using the wrong whatever. And if I just change this thing, um, it will help. And, and sometimes when you are a home cook, I think you don't know that you don't know what to do. You know, it's not just, it's not right, but you don't know how to fix it. And I felt really good reading all of that introductory material before you start your first recipe and felt, well, this is, this is really like powerful information. <laughs> so I just wanted to let you know that it worked. Whatever you were trying to do, <laughs> it, it really, it really worked. And then it also makes you feel very confident that the same kind of thoughtfulness has gone into the actual recipes themselves. So um, that is also nice because there's nothing worse than trying a recipe and then feeling that it was kind of a waste of your time. <laughs> well, and a waste of your money. That's the other thing. I think this is where the sous vide also comes in in that it is used in instances where you have spent a decent amount of money on a protein or mm -hmm. on an ingredient. Uh, and that's where it shines. Like with beef Wellington, whenever I go, whenever I make it, I go to my butcher and, and he always says, okay, you know how much this costs, right? <laughs> I'm like, I love you for being very concerned for me. And, and that pressure, not only of the most expensive cut of meat, but of the fact that it is a hidden meat, that when you're cooking it, it is wrapped up, right? right? right. And so you can, all, and you can, sure, you can stab it with a thermometer, but you've just encased it in beautiful pastry. There are only so many times you want to stab it 
to mm -hmm. establish the temperature. So sous beating it just under the temperature ahead of time. And then before you do the sear and all that stuff, it is just, it is, oh my goodness, it's insurance. It like, the fear will just leave you. You can actually enjoy the process. Fried chicken is the same. Fried chicken freaks people out because it's like you, you put in this gorgeous coating, then you fry it and you're like, you don't want to stab it because then all the gorgeous flakiness comes off. So you're like, am I going to hurt somebody with undercooked chicken? <laughs> well, <laughs> you do it just under the temperature you're going for and then in the sous vide and then your frying will be the best. And you won't, and you won't over fry. You won't get that crispy, like super crispy, almost hard coating, which sometimes happens, you know, when it's perfectly golden, that's when you're scared because you think, Jeepers, it looks fantastic now, but I know that this chicken isn't cooked inside. So mm -hmm. then you have to fry it some more until it's that like almost burnt. But man, get a sous vide, game changer. Yes, that sounds that sounds like the best advice. And so when you were writing, how how much would you say? Because I've I've interviewed a lot of people who've written books that have the name of a state in the title so that they're reflections of not only that person's feelings about the state, but also certain things that are either from the state or cooked in the state and are identified with the state. How much would you say that Vermont has influenced your cooking, especially what you chose to include in this particular cookbook? Well, there's a lot of maple, there's a lot of cheese, there's a lot of cream and butter. And luckily, those are things that you can get everywhere in the United States. But Vermont is just, we're known for it and we're known for it for a reason. And I think that there's something so beautiful, especially with the maple, that it is such an, Amer it's like, it's such an American thing. It's like, there's this one place in America where, I mean, uh, there are more states, but we're famous for it. And isn't that special that we've got this national unique ingredient that we all have access to that is so beautiful and so special and that lends itself to like seasoning savory things or sweetening your pancakes or and, and, and. I mean, I think it's just one of those it's liquid gold and it is only in America. I mean, North America, but specifically in America, Vermont is a place where you want to get it. And it just made, I'm so proud. And I also feel that it's not that you can't get the things that I'm making everywhere. That's what I wrote this because Vermont is more a vibe. Like we've got all these seasons. And when I was in LA, I wish I had had this book because I missed the seasons so much and I would try to recreate it and I didn't quite get there and I'm like I'm kind of writing this book for everyone who longs for this kind of place mm -hmm. and and it is something in American hearts that Vermont is something that we look to when we want comfort and this is not a lie because you watch any television show and like whether it's friends whether it was scandal whenever they're going to visit a place and they just need to say one word that signifies to the audience that they're going to someplace special and warm, warm for the heart and comforting. They always say, oh, we're going to Vermont for the weekend. In Scandal, the president said, I'm going to retire to Vermont. It was always like 
this is the future happy for me, right? <laughs> so it's like Vermont is a vibe for our whole nation. And so I wasn't fearful that in writing this book that I was limiting my audience. I was inviting a whole audience of Americans who look at Vermont and say, this is our little place in our United States that is of sweetness and comfort and joy. And it truly is. And our food reflects that in different ways through the season. And I think you can, I think you can bring that home wherever home is. So you can bring my Vermont table to your table in Louisiana, in LA, Wisconsin, anywhere. I mean, that's why I wrote this because I wanted to share the joy and happiness of a place that I found. And so you can recreate that at home. So tell me what your typical Thanksgiving dinner would be. Well, for, for first, it starts the d- days before. I usually, I'm usually working on bread duty way, way ahead of time because I just, I just make too much work for myself. But the kind I enjoy, I'm like, I'll usually have four different kinds of bread. It's like, what? Why? I'm there. What's going on? <laughs> so everything from a sourdough to pumpkin rolls. So that's that's the bread. When I grew up, my mom, we grew up vegetarian and then vegan. And my mom was German. So Thanksgiving was kind of like we would have the turkey, but I would look to my other friends to see what like the real deal was the green bean casserole, the cranberry in a can, the, you know, all the fun stuff. And so, but when I grew up, I'm like, I didn't quite understand the green beans and the mushrooms. They were like mushy and uh, they weren't for me, but I kind of loved the idea of it. So I took things that were around me um, that I thought were flavorful and fun. And I made versions of my own, fry my own onions that are super crispy on top slightly blanching the green beans and making a gorgeous creamy bechamel with dried mushrooms. And the reason I love dried mushrooms is they're so packed with flavor and you can get the really fancy flavorful ones, so much cheaper dried. Mm -hmm. And then that dry, when you infuse it, when you saturate them in cream versus water, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that flavor is like, wowza, it's so amazing. So that will always be there. And I do a cranberry sauce that is more like a gastrique. So it has a little more of a tang than sweetness because I feel like the reason we have cranberries at all at Thanksgiving is that everything is so rich and so brown that you get the color of it, but you also get that acidity that breaks through all that heavy, heavy stuff. And I feel like we've gone the opposite. We've just made it so sweet that we don't get that. So mine does have sweetness, but enough tang that it cuts through all the all the heaviness. And it's like a palate cleanser. And then a gorgeous turkey a la my mama, because she made gorgeous turkeys and she kept it simple. And then I love a super creamy mashed potato, but I invite all things to the table. You know, if somebody is coming to dinner and they're like, oh, we do this, like for instance, green chili is something that my husband's family does in Colorado. So I'm like, let's just bring in all the traditions because they're all delicious and worthy of the table. Well, and besides that, that's part of the idea of Thanksgiving that it encompasses everybody. So yeah, and everyone's (laughs) traditions. Yes, exactly. Yes. I always put a little hot sauce in my cranberry sauce because oh. I, I not only want it to be tangy, but I want it to be spicy. <laughs> I'm all for it. I think that sounds amazing. 
So I really want to thank you so much. First of all, for writing the book. I just thought that it was a joy to read. But thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. So people should look for My Vermont Table Recipes for All Six Seasons. You can get it anywhere. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.